Welcome to Question Period, I'm Joyce Napier. Today on the program, Funding Feud. The current crisis is the undeniable proof that the old way doesn't work. We need the federal government to increase its role and support for public health care and not, as has been happening for too, too long, diminish that role. With healthcare systems across Canada in crisis, federal and provincial levels of government failed to reach a deal on healthcare funding. Who is responsible for the stalemate? Could bilateral deals be an option? We'll speak to Federal Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos and then get reaction from BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. Plus, support for Ukraine. Russia is trying to attack many countries abroad. And this country has no place in, in G20, we believe. The war in Ukraine is expected to be a major focus at this week's G20 summit. What further international support does Ukraine need? And what will be President Volodymyr Zelensky's message at the meeting? Ukraine's ambassador to Canada will be here. Then, climate change costs. We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. With COP27 underway, is there political will for the world's biggest polluters to pay for climate financing for developing countries? And what can Canadians expect from the first ever national adaptation strategy that is meant to protect us against extreme weather impacts? We'll speak to Environment and Climate Change Minister Stephen Gilbo. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. Failed funding talks. With emergency rooms across the country overrun and millions of Canadians without a family doctor, federal and provincial governments have failed to agree on how to increase health care funding or even how to begin fixing the system. This after the first in-person health minister's meeting in four years. The provinces are renewing calls for the federal government to increase health care transfers from 22% to 35%. And for his part, Federal Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos says Ottawa is ready to increase health care transfers, but with strings attached. Before this past week's meeting even wrapped, premiers already declared no progress had been made and repeated a request to meet with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. So who is to blame for the halting progress? And could we see bilateral funding agreements between the federal government and provinces? Joining me now is Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos. Uh, hello, Minister. It's always good to have you on the show. Hello, Joyce, and hello to everyone listening. Um, your meeting last week with your provincial and territorial counterparts ended with a stalemate and actually angry words on both sides. So don't you think Canadians deserve better than that? Well, thank you for asking the question. I would say there is very good news and some indeed uh, concerning uh, statements. Let me start with the good news. On the substance, on another relationship, my work with provincial and territorial health ministers is really good. We agree on every priority, supporting healthcare workers, uh, giving access, greater access to family doctors, especially in remote and rural areas, reducing backlogs in surgeries and diagnostics, uh, increasing access to mental health care. We all agree on that, and we've agreed on that for a long time. The concern is that premiers, unfortunately, just a few days prior to the conference, without us knowing, had given marching orders to my colleagues, health ministers, who want to do their job 
not to do their job. So we ended up, as you said, with a stalemate, not because we are not working really well together, we are, but because premiers want us to insist only on dollars, which you know is not the solution. We need to agree on ends before we come to the means to achieve those ends. It's almost like you don't trust you know, the, the, the provinces. You, you want to impose conditions, understandably or not, as healthcare falls under provincial jurisdiction. Why not just trust them? Not only do I trust my colleagues' health ministers, but I want to be their ally. I want to help them. They have a very hard job to do in the recurrent context, and that's going to be a job increasingly important as our population is aging. Not only the population of patients, but the populations of health workers. Now, these health workers are aging. So we know there is already a crisis, but if we work together, we'll be able to address not only that current crisis, yeah, but, but, but the but, future of our health care system. Absolutely. But you know, it doesn't, sorry, but it doesn't look at all like you're working together. Uh, they, they are asking the transfers from, to go from 22 to 35 percent. So, and, and what dollar amount or health transfer increase then is the federal government willing to commit if like say the provinces agreed to your terms to conditions are you willing to go up to 35 percent first there is a futile fight and then a useful battle the futile futile fight is to fight on percentage points including tra tax point uh, transfer points these things which are you no know, help helping finance ministers do nothing to help health ministers. I'm there to help my colleagues, health ministers. So we want to agree on the ends, and we have agreed on these ends until very recently, until the premiers forced my, my colleagues, health ministers, not to do, uh, not to make progress and to keep working together. Now, that's the futile fight. The useful battle is a battle for our health workers who are unfortunately very tired. Many of them are sick with COVID and other things. Many of them are thinking to leave their profession, which would be very unfortunate. Nurses, for instance, find it quite hard, and young nurses in particular, find it quite hard to see a future when there is a crisis. Now, my news to them is that, yes, you can be hopeful because we health ministers know what to do and we want to do it, but we need premiers to let us do our job and focus on the results and the ends we want to achieve together. Let me ask you this. Provinces like Quebec and Saskatchewan are now sending out $500 checks to help eligible residents deal with inflation. So. Is it, is it hard for you to, 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 or is it hypocritical for provinces to dole out money, but say they need money for health care? Is that one of the problems? Is it that you are afraid at the end of the day that the provinces, or you don't trust the provinces, to use that money for health care? Two, two different answers to this good question. First, um, let me say that if dollars were the solution to the problem, that problem would be solved quickly because provinces and territories on average are already running surpluses and most of them will be running large surpluses very soon. So if dollars were to solve the problem, we, we wouldn't need to, to talk together. But that unfortunately is not the case. That's the old way. My job is not to send dollars to finance ministers. My job is to make sure that whatever we do helps my colleagues, health ministers, do the, the difficult and important work that they want to do and want to keep doing because of all the, uh, the, the, all the issues that we see, increases in chronic disease, mental health very, being severely impacted, healthcare workers also being very impacted by COVID-19. So we know there is a lot of work to do. And my job as a health minister in Canada is to help 
health ministers, not to health finance ministers. So would the federal government, for instance, consider signing bilateral health care funding deals with the provinces, you know, similar to what the, your government did with, with child care? The federal government needs to be mindful of the diversity of conditions and actions and, and ambitions that we see across a large country. And that is true. Now, my job is also to acknowledge that in different parts of our country, although the challenges and the priorities are basically uh, the same, now the, 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 the speed with which now some provinces might want to act, say, on immigration, recognition of international credentials for those that would like to come to Canada and work as a health worker, uh, whether we invest in the in support to the younger or the younger nurses as they enter the profession with mentoring and, 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 and sponsoring uh, support, whether we want to attract back to the, the workforce re nurses that have recently retired, that have moved to the private sector. Now, there are different agendas across Canada. And as you said, we need to be mindful of the importance of recognizing that diversity. Uh, Jean-Yves Duclos, Canada's health minister, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you and have a good day, everyone. And that's the federal government's perspective. Let's go now to BC Health Minister Adrian Dix to respond. Um, good to have you on the show, Minister. Uh, thanks for taking the time. Um, so I spoke to Minister uh, Jean-Yves Duclos earlier in the show, and, and it seems that you health ministers, both provincial, territorial and federal, got along beautifully, but it was the premiers who said, just give us the money. We just want the money. We don't want to discuss uh, conditions. We just want money. Is that what happened? Because Canadians are going to want to know, why is this not working? Why are you guys not getting along? Well, first of all, we are getting along. To, uh, that didn't look uh, in, like it. In personally, but um, we've been asking, the premiers have been asking, the provinces have been asking, I think the people of Canada have been asking for more than a year for a national conference on something called the Canada Health Transfer, which is the federal government's contribution to health care under, uh, uh, despite all of the requests, and you heard uh, Joyce Premier Horgan make this request multiple times over the course of the year. We hadn't heard anything from the federal government on that question. We worked on lots of things, including and especially COVID-19. The morning of our meeting starts, the prime minister says, uh, we're thinking of increasing the Canada Health Act transfer. Well, and then then he says, and we're we want some conditions on that. And then Minister Duclos repeats it. So Minister Duclos comes up and we asked him, well, what are the details? And there were no details. They didn't want to discuss that. And um, it was quite unusual. Is it that they don't trust, like, are we going to send the money without conditions and they're going to build bridges or do like Saskatchewan, send $500 affordability checks to people? Quebec intends to do that too. I understand that there is an affordability crisis out there, but is it that the, the, the federal government thinks that you're petulant and you're not going to spend the money on health care? Is there a lack of, of, of transparency on your part? Can't you just tell them we're going to spend this money on this? I, people are trying to uh, understand well, what's the well, issue well, here. I, I don't understand it either because, in fact, the inflation in health care, and inflation everywhere is high, is dramatically above general inflation. It's a highly labor-intensive thing, health care, and we are spending well above the rate of the Canada Health Transfer, well above the increase in the rate of the Canada health transfer, well above um, the inflation rate on healthcare because it's expensive and because in BC, we're gonna have twice as many people over 75 in 10 years and people over 75 need healthcare more than the average person, right? So um, I do not quite understand 
why the federal government wants to see its share, uh, its contribution to to Medicare in Canada, to public health care in Canada, diminish. And that's what we want to discuss. So there's an easy way to deal with this. They can agree to a meeting on the Canada Health Transfer. And if they have concerns or a position to put out, they can express those. The Prime Minister is the most experienced First, First Minister. I'm sure he can defend his position. I'll so tell you this, Joyce. I, I would sit down at noon on Boxing Day. I'll serve Turkey to federal officials if they come out and have a, if they come and have a serious meeting on the Canada Health Transfer. I want to ask you this, Minister Dix, would bilateral health care funding deals, you know, between, for instance, B.C. and Ottawa or Saskatchewan and Ottawa, would that be in the cards instead of just one general transfer and a percentage to all the provinces have different deals in different provinces? Would you be down with that? Uh, the Canada Health Transfer, we've never had more unanimity amongst the provinces. Provinces of all political parties came together and laid out their position this week and have done for more than a year under Premier Horgan's leadership, now under Premier Stephenson's leadership. The federal government has a case to make. They should come and make it. But it is preposterous to say all people care about is money when that money is used to hire nurses and doctors and allied health professionals and deal with primary care and address mental health and addiction problems. The federal government's contribution is is of course financial because in Canada they have the the significant taxation powers and the provinces have very important jurisdictions such as healthcare and that is the reality of the country the reason we got public healthcare in every part of Canada is because there was a partnership between the two and so you know the federal government unfortunately in this case i don't think has has taken this matter seriously we've been asking for a meeting for a year a meeting and haven't got one but i'm not discouraged because I think this is fundamental to the future of the country. We are investing more than ever before in healthcare, And I mean incrementally. If we get more money from the federal government, it's going to doctors and nurses and allied health professionals. And you just have to look at any provincial budget to see that that's the case. Well, that will be uh, interesting. You know, I think there are two words that Canadians want to tell you is fix it. Uh, because, uh, yeah, it will, it, I, uh, is, it is getting, it's unfortunately, all the time we have. But I am sure that we will talk about this again. BC Health Minister Adrian Dix, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, I totally agree. Thanks, Joyce. When we come back, Ukraine at the G20. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky will attend this week's G20 summit. What does his attendance signal and what further support does Ukraine need? Ukraine's ambassador to Canada joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. Ukraine on the world stage. The first G20 summit since Russia's invasion of Ukraine is coming up this Tuesday in Indonesia, and the ongoing impact of the war is expected to dominate the conference. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky will take part, despite the fact Ukraine is not a member state, while Russian President Vladimir Putin is opting to skip it. Prior to the summit, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spoke with President Zelensky and the two discussed the possibility of expanding defense support for Ukraine. <laughs> All of this comes as Ukrainian troops recaptured the southern Ukrainian city of Kherson the only regional capital seized by Moscow throughout the war. So what further support does Ukraine need in its war against Russia? And joining me now is Ukraine's ambassador to Canada, Yulia Kovaliv. Very nice to have you on the show. Welcome. 
Um, I want to ask you about Kherson. Uh, so the Russians retreated, but they left behind mines. There is no electricity. There is no water. There's no gas. How are Ukrainians going to make it safe again and viable again to live there? First of all, we see already the pictures of Ukrainian flag in Kherson. And Kherson is uh, the regional center, which was the only one just a few days ago, the only one that Russians controlled. Today there is the Ukrainian flag and people are on the streets, happy people that Ukraine is coming back. And of course, uh, it's not easy. And of course, there are a lot of things like you mentioned, lack of electricity, uh, huge risk of a lot of mines. And in order to start to bring the normal life to the people, there will be enormous efforts of all our first responders, rescue teams. And that's, that's a very important thing for help us quickly restore the life, especially with those liberated areas. If, if to say for Kherson, Kherson for eight months was uh, under the occupation. And of course, it's so important for the people to provide the social uh, services, normal electricity, water supply, and just, you know, the, the bringing the life to the people who, who lived in this dire situation for, for the previous months. And with the, the mining, that's a big issue. It's on many occupied territories. We saw it near Kyiv. We saw it in Kharkiv region. Unfortunately, in summer, there were the cases that Ukrainian farmers died on the fields because of the mines. So there are thousands of square kilometers of the, uh, of the mines on Ukrainian territory. And these demining efforts will be really huge. So we value the support of the Canadian government for our mining, uh, the mining efforts, including the providing us with the equipment, training, but the scale of it is so big that, you know, that you, we will You are going to need, need more, more help, but yeah. your president will be Volodymyr Zelensky um, at the G20 summit. How significant is it that he attends and what do you think will be his asks to these countries? It's significant because the G20 uh, accepts Russia. That organization that was built up uh, to work on the economic prosperity globe. But if we look on currently Russia still being the G20 member, it's like when you have a pandemic in the city and then you bring the virus in the city hall. Because most of these economic challenges and the global economic um, perspective that we face now, most of that was caused by Russia and by Russian invasion into Ukraine. And the inflation... Which so you think that, that it would help Ukraine if Russia were kicked out of the of G20? Of course. And we, we how, how would it help? Look, because the country that just um, breached all the order, the country which is put on the edge many countries in the global south and the Middle East, on the bridge of the famine, because of their Russian plays around the uh, grain deal just a few days ago. This is, the, this is the country that just, you know, spread this virus of the crises, not only what we feel in Ukraine now, but look on the European energy 
and look on what, what was happening a few months ago. Now look on the global food security. This is also the part of the Russia is trying to attack many countries globe. And this country has no place in, in G20, we believe. So your president spoke to the Canadian prime minister, um, you know, obviously speaking about possibility of more defense aid. What does your country need in terms of military aid or in terms of aid from Canada? Uh, I would start saying that the recent initiative that Prime Minister Trudeau announced in Winnipeg about the Ukrainian sovereignty bonds, it's not only a big support for our budget needs, but it's also very symbolical. Because many people were asking us how we can help. And introducing this mechanism of Ukraine sovereignty bonds where every Canadian can contribute with the support of Cana backing by the Canadian government uh, to buy these bonds and to help the people of Ukraine. This is a very important and symbolic step. And in terms of the military, this is a as we are advancing, we also are losing some of the equipment. And of course, this is the armed vehicles, this is the artillery, this is, you know, what we are already getting from Canada. But since the war going on, with successes as we, as we see on the battlefield, we need more just to advance more and more and to get control over our territories. Do you feel that you, the people in Ukraine that you obviously are in touch with are feeling that this is closer to victory? Is there any fatigue there? No. Um, and you know, just a month ago, uh, when Russia hit the significantly both the Kyiv and all of the infrastructure, the response of Ukrainians was that just for 36 hours, Ukrainians uh, donated the money to buy a fleet or armed vehicles. Just within eight hours, they collected $10 million for the new drones for our armed forces. So the response of Ukrainians is just more commitment, more support, because we see our gains on the Kharkiv region now advancing on Kherson. And this makes all of us more motivated and, uh, you know, the morale is very high. Well, we're going to finish on a, on a, on a happy note, Yulia Kovaliv. Ukraine's ambassador to Canada, thank you for being here. Thank you. Coming up, climate costs. Is there the political will to push the world's biggest polluters like China to pay for climate financing? What specific details can Canadians look for in the upcoming national adaptation strategy? Environment and Climate Change Minister Stephen Guilbeault is here next. Stay right here with Question Period. cost of climate change. World leaders are meeting in Egypt for the United Nations Climate Change Conference, otherwise known as COP27. And it's all happening against the backdrop of inflation, the war in Ukraine and a global energy crisis. At this year's conference, developing nations are calling for richer countries to pay their fair share for the damage caused by their emissions. As part of the Paris Agreement, developed countries reaffirm their commitment of $100 billion a year in climate finance by 2020, but that has yet to be reached. Last year, Canada committed $5.3 billion over five years as part of the initiative. 
Meantime, Canadians are waiting for the first ever national adaptation strategy, which is expected by the end of the year. The strategy is meant to protect those living in Canada from the worsening impact of climate change. So what specific details can Canadians look for in the upcoming national adaptation strategy and why should developed countries like Canada provide money to developing nations to bring down greenhouse gas emissions? Joining me now is Environment and Climate Change Minister Stephen Guilbeault. Uh, Minister, welcome to Question Period. It's good to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joyce. So among the goals uh, this year at the summit where you are is boosting financing for poor countries struggling with the impact of, of climate change. Now, do you think there is globally a political will for that conversation? There is. Uh, in fact, uh, just yesterday, uh, Canada, Germany and the United Kingdom uh, presented a, a report which shows that uh, in 2020, that's the last year we, we, we have data, uh, country, developed countries, Canada, Europe, Japan, the United States, mobilized $83 billion to help developing countries face the impacts of climate change, uh, go towards more clean technologies and, and renewable energy. Now, $83 billion is good, but it's not good enough because the commitment we had made was to provide $100 billion. So we're we're, we're getting there, but we're not quite there yet. There's another huge issue. It's the big polluters. I'm thinking China, for in instance, which is responsible for 30% of global emissions. And it has actually refused to, to sort of engage in the same exercise that you and maybe other uh, Western or richer countries so, uh, ha have done. So are you expecting uh, this to work or is this a bit an exercise in futility? It is a global problem, and, and therefore we need global solutions. And we need all the large polluters to do their fair share. Um, and, and frankly, I mean, if the, the, if the G20, the, the 20 largest economies in the world, do what they need to do, we'll get there. So the issue is not so much uh, most of the countries in the world that, that don't pollute for, for, my, for much. The least developed African countries don't even contribute 0.5%. Uh, we're talking 55 countries here uh, to, 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 to global emissions. So you're right. It, it, it is about the, the, the large polluters and Canada's part of it and the United States and, and Europe. But if, if, if China, if, if India, if, if Brazil, if South Africa don't do their fair share, then, then we, we won't get there. So in last week's uh, fall economic statement, Finance Minister Christian Freeland did not include a windfall tax on energy companies uh, that have been making actually record profits. Is that, in your opinion, first of all, did you, did you sort of fight for that? And in your opinion, is it a missed opportunity? A couple of things I'd like to say about that. First, we're, we're already putting a price on pollution, which oil companies are, are, are paying. And as we go to 2030, it's going to become, it is already one of the most ambitious, and it, it is going to be one of the two or three most ambitious carbon pricing system in, in the world in the next eight years. We're putting in place a number of regulatory measures to force oil companies to reduce their pollution, meaning they have to invest in, in their operations to, to, to reduce pollution. And in the fall economic statement, my, my, my colleague and friend, Minister Freeland, announced that we would put in place a tax on share buybacks. So where companies 
gave a lot of money to their shareholders. We're going to put a tax on that. So is it a windfall tax? Is it not a windfall tax? No, it's not even close to a windfall tax in terms of what uh, it would mean in terms of gover government revenues. Uh, but well, it will generate $2.6 billion. That's not yeah, pocket change. Over, over, over a certain amount of years, Minister. Look, Canadians are also waiting for your, your national adaptation strategy to help you know, protect residents here from future extreme weather, uh, you know, such as hurricanes, floods, droughts. When can we expect those details and you know, how specific will they be? So far, our government has invested $4 billion to help Canadians be better prepared to face the impacts of climate change. But we need to do more. And we need to do that in collaboration with provinces, territories, municipalities, uh, indigenous nations, because the federal government has an important role to play, but we don't have all the levers. What do you think, even if you're, you're, you, you, you haven't published yet your, your policy, what do you think these adaptation measures should be? What should be the priority? Let me give you a couple of different examples. Um, the, 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 the most costly impacts of climate change in Canada, basement floodings. For a few hundred dollars per households that are at risk, we could reduce the, the, the impact to, to, to people, to their lives, but, but also to the, to the Canadian economy, we could re reduce the, the, the impacts of, of, of floodings by at least 50, maybe even 75%. So a few hundred dollars per, per household. So we're not, we're, you know, we're not sending anyone to the moon here. There are a number of these small measures that we can do in collaboration with provinces and municipalities to, to ensure that, that basically Canadians are better prepared to face the impacts of climate change and that they suffer less both on, on, a, on a human uh, and personal basis as well as an, on an economic basis. Environment and Climate Change Minister Stephen Gilbault, thanks for joining us and, and giving us your time. Thank you very much. Still to come, challenging China. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie says Canada's long-awaited Indo-Pacific strategy will be unveiled in the next month. Is Canada signaling it's taking a tougher stance against China? Canada's former ambassador to China, Guy Saint-Jacques, joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. Criticizing China. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie is giving new hints at Canada's long-awaited Indo-Pacific strategy expected within the month. China is an increasingly disruptive global power. It seeks to shape the global environment into one that is more permissive for interests and values that increasingly depart from ours. Ahead of this week's G20 summit, Jolie warned of geopolitical risks in doing business in China. And her tone has shifted, with the federal government being reluctant to criticize Beijing in the past. But Canada and China have also had a complicated relationship in recent years, following China's detainment of Canadians Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor in late 2018. The move was seen at the time as retaliation for Canada's arrest of Huawei executive Meng Guangzhou at the request of the United States. The two Michaels were released nearly three years later after Meng cut a deal with U.S. prosecutors and returned to China. So what is Canada signaling about its new approach to China? And where do Canada-China relations stand now? The Scrum is here to answer that. Bob Fife is the Ottawa Bureau Chief at the Globe and Mail here in Ottawa. Tana McCharles is a parliamentary reporter for the Toronto Star. And our special guest is Canada's former ambassador to China, Monsieur Guy Saint-Jacques. Welcome, Monsieur Saint-Jacques. Um, 
You had previously said that it should be easy for the federal government to declare China as a strategic rival. So I want to hear your reaction to what Minister Melanie Jolie is indicating as, as we wait for the full Indo-Pacific strategy. What do you make of her tone? Well, I think that uh, uh, she has been uh, debating uh, how she could, uh, how she should uh, call China. Uh, you know, in my view, it's clear that uh, China has become a strategic uh, rival. But uh, I would say that uh, at this stage, what was important was to come out and say that uh, uh, China is a superpower that uh, is uh, on a course that uh, makes uh, a lot of country, a lot of people very worried. Uh, you know, she mentioned all the right things that they are interfering. Uh, they they are disruptive, and so for for me, you know, it's a it's a question of semantic, and uh, it's it's not the the the, the vocabulary that uh, needs to be precise, uh, and so I'm I'm okay with what she said. Bob, what do you make of it? What what stood out for you in in, in Melanie Jolie's speech, and did we get any idea about? any hint about this Indo-Pacific strategy? Yeah, look, uh, I think it's a significant move and a departure from the previous government's position, even from a year ago where she was still stuck in that sort of Cretchen era uh, viewpoint is that, you know, you shouldn't really criticize China and you can trade with them to the point where she's adopted the thinking of most of our uh, democratic allies that, that China is a, a growing military and economic threat in the Indo-Pacific and that Canada has to recognize that. And she, uh, she, and I think it was a realistic one. Yes, we should be trading with China, but businesses should know that if you deal with China, there is a risk. So this to me uh, is a real big step forward. And, uh, you know, frankly, the government should be congratulated for it, but uh, we also have to wait to actually see the details, because this was a preview. We haven't seen the actual details on the document. And, and I think that's where the rubber hits the road. Will this translate into more government uh, eyes on the ground and ears on the ground in China in, and where they're worried about what the Chinese government is doing in response to human rights concerns over there? And whether or not, you know, Canada, to what extent the government is prepared to facilitate those business ties now? Or are they going to take a little bit more of a flag the warnings to the business community and be more realistic and align themselves more closely did, with the U.S. and the, other they allies. They did say in, in her speech that they were going to put more yeah. uh, diplomats in missions abroad. That means they're going to keep an eye on yeah. China and Africa and Asia and other parts of the world, which I, I, Mr. Saint-Jacques is a better expert on that than, than me, but that seems to me to be pretty significant as mm -hmm. well, even though it seems inside our beltway yeah, for us. And, and, and telling businesses, if you're going to do business with China, do it with eyes wide open. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, that seems to be. But uh, Guy Saint-Jacques, you know, President Xi recently said China will strengthen its military training and preparation for any war. Are there any concerns about China and Taiwan? What would Canada's, you know, sort of biggest concern be when it comes to China? Is that it? Well, <clears throat> I think that uh, we, we have to be very concerned because uh, if you listen to what uh, Xi Jinping said at the 20th Congress, uh, clearly, uh, the, in his mind, there is a deadline, uh, and uh, Taiwan has to be part of, of China. You know, the ultimate deadline is 2049, but I think in his mind, 
It's earlier than that. He has asked the Chinese military to be ready to to get into a war by 2027. I think that uh, uh, Taiwan uh, will be a point of friction uh, with the United States, with the rest of the world. And that's an example when Minister Jolie said that uh, uh, we will uh, strengthen our alliances, we will seek new allies. This is an area where we have to work together to, to deliver a joint message to China on the consequences uh, if it were to, uh, to invade uh, Taiwan. And, I think that the likelihood of this happening uh, could be exacerbated if the economic situation of China continues to deteriorate because, among other things, the bad management of, uh, of COVID. So, Bob, what is the current state of relations, if any, between Canada and China? Well, it's not very good. Uh, we only recently just got a, a, a new ambassador put in Afghanistan, or sorry, into China. Uh, Ms. Jolie has had some talks with the uh, Chinese foreign minister, but relations are pretty, pretty cool, and they may be warming up a little, but you know, the announcement of this Indo-Pacific strategy was denounced pretty vociferously from, from the Chinese embassy. Uh, they're, they are not happy with this Indo-Pacific strategy, but we are in link with our allies, and that's where we should be. You spoke to the ambassador, mm -hmm. to the new ambassador, yeah. as she was, uh, after she was appointed. Is there even any point for diplomacy when things are, are the way they are? Look, she's taken a signal from this government that there is still a point for diplomacy. There, in, in this government's mind, at least, those doors have to stay open. Those channels of communication have to stay open. And frankly, if everything goes south very quickly in China, we still have Canadians, strong Canadians ties, Canadian citizens living in China. You need those channels to deal with whatever comes up in terms of a consular emergency. So this government is not going to cut off diplomatic ties. If anything, it's going to attempt to keep those channels open. And and God knows we needed it when the two Michaels were imprisoned. Yeah, yeah and this while we wait for the Indo-Pacific strategy. Uh, Guy Saint-Jacques, thanks for joining us as usual, and Bob and Tonda will stay with us. After the break, provincial pleas and transfer talks. No progress was made on health care funding between the provinces and the federal government. What can resolve this political stalemate amid Canada's growing health care crisis? Former Canadian Medical Association President Dr. Catherine Smart joins the Scrum next. Stay right here with question period. From a federal perspective, we're gonna be there with more money, but we are going to make sure that that money actually delivers the kinds of results that people here in New Brunswick and across the country actually deserve. While the provinces, territories, and federal government continue to haggle over healthcare spending, Health experts across the country are calling on their elected representatives to reach a deal soon. They say resources are already stretched thin going into flu season, with COVID-19 cases expected to rise and still long wait times for care. But healthcare officials also are warning throwing more money at the problem is unlikely to fix a broken system. So, did this week's health minister's meeting move the needle on healthcare transfer talks and should the provinces accept more cash with conditions? The Scrum is here to answer that. Our journals are back. Bob Fife is the bureau chief of the Globe and Mail here in Ottawa. Tana McCharles is a parliamentary reporter for the Toronto Star. 
And our special guest this round is former Canadian Medical Association President, Dr. Catherine Smart. Welcome back. Welcome, uh, Dr. Smart. It's good to have you on the show. Um, the, the CMA expressed disappointment that the meeting between the health ministers this past week, quote, fell short. What did you make of the meeting and, you know, what were you hoping for? Well, I think like many Canadians, I was very disappointed in the outcome of the meeting. I think what we were hoping for was to see cooperation and collaboration between levels of government towards solutions in what is our failing healthcare system. And I think, unfortunately, that we fell very short of that mark. You know, at the Canadian Medical Association, we've advanced several solutions uh, that we think can be implemented in the near term. Um, and we're just not seeing the political willingness, I don't think, to step outside of, of the traditional rhetoric around healthcare should be delivered. Um, and we're we're stuck in our silos and, and what that's led to here is an impasse. But what that means for Canadians is ongoing lack of access to timely care and it's highly concerning. Should it be conditional? Should the money the federal government sends to provinces, do you feel that that would make it, that that would improve the system if it was conditional? I think what Canadians want to see is a return on their investments, and we know that the dollars spent on healthcare in our country are substantial, but we also know that we do not have a system that has high levels of accountability or is outcomes driven. So I think, you know, seeing some, some strings attached in terms of what these dollars are going to be going towards so that Canadians can see that accountability so that we can be moving in the same direction, I think is important. So Bob, I want to bring you in here because Justin Trudeau was criticized for not, at, not attending this meeting. He did say, once COVID is over, we will have a meeting and we will fix this. Was that a miscalculation on his part? Well, I mean, I think he has to call the premiers together. But before, I think the premiers are brought together because we've seen the lack of leadership between the, the health ministers and the federal and provincial health ministers who, have, who are not listening to the healthcare professionals who are telling us what needs to be done to fix the system. I think the health, federal health minister should hold his own conference, televise it with the doctors and nurses in this country to lay out what is wrong with our system, which is broken, and put the pressure back on the provinces which are responsible for healthcare to say, we'll give you this money, but you've got to You've got to bring in measures to fix the health care uh, system so that we will see real differences in six months' time or a year's time. I think, that, I think the thing that baffles Canadians, and Dr. Smart touched on it, but that how is it that in, I guess, in principle, they all agree on the same thing, that priorities, certain priorities are the priorities. There are people in the country can't get family doctors. We need mental health services. We need access to drugs. We need uh, better data collected. In principle, all the provinces say they support that kind of thing, bring more doctors and nurses into the system. So why is it that they object to uh, the federal government wanting some kind of guaranteed that's where the money will but, but go? Even, uh, even the federal government, look, they promised mental health initiative. They, they would give them mm. transfers. No money yet, no money delivered. Yeah. Uh, you know, they talk a good game, but they don't deliver. So, Dr. Smart, you know, the, the, the CMA has previously said that Canada's healthcare system doesn't need just more money poured into it. So, what does it need? 
Well, I think we need a fundamental shift in the way we deliver health care. I mean, right now we spend a lot of dollars on health care, as we should, but we are not seeing the outcomes in our system for the investments that we're making. So I think the real concern is when we're only talking about dollars and the entire conversation is, is the provinces and territories wanting more dollars from the federal government without acknowledging that we need to transform and modernize our health care system. The concern is we're just putting more money into something that's broken. Um, we really do need fundamental shifts in the way team-based care is delivered, the way primary care is delivered, the way we license physicians in this country, the need to build accountability and outcomes-driven data into our system. These are foundational changes that need to happen. Um, and if we don't get at some of those root causes of why things aren't working and we just continue to pour dollars into what is an old-fashioned way of doing things, we're not going to deliver for Canadians. And what matters is Canadians getting timely access to high-quality health care. So, Bob, it was interesting how the provincial uh, governments launched this ad uh, campaign. Uh, there were billboards, it was radio ads, you know, pointing the finger at the federal government saying, if your, federal, your, your funding is disappearing, if your doctors are leaving, if your nurses are quitting, it's because of the federal government. Is that helping at all? No, I mean, Dr. Smart has really laid out some really sensible ideas to fix the system. It's not as if it isn't known, but what we see is our politicians fighting over jurisdiction, fighting about money, and not, not addressing the concerns of health of people like me and you. I don't have a family doctor, for example. I want to get a family doctor. This system is broken. There are solutions out there. But the politicians are spending their time fighting over amongst themselves, and, and it, it just drives me mad, frankly, and I'm sure it drives people in the healthcare system even madder. So it's not, it's not about money. Right. Oh, Although the provinces, the sure provinces are money. saying, it's okay. It's about money, and more than that, it's about the control over the money. Exactly. That's what it's about. So how do you fix this? They keep bickering, they keep bickering. It, it, it is disappointing, and I can understand the disappointment, not only of the CMA, but of all of us, right? We all know this, no family doctor, um, you know, long waits for any kind of procedure. So are they not being punished politically? Well, are we just the watching point, these it? people do this and fight we've and just bicker? Seen, we've just seen an, a number of provincial elections where incumbent governments who got slammed during the pandemic for mishandling things like long-term care and allowing deaths to escalate in all kinds of areas not get punished by an electorate. So while voters talk that about this being a priority, when it comes to election time, the Ontario government was re-elected, the Quebec government was re-elected, two provinces which saw the highest rates of death in the country. So uh, look, the healthcare system, everybody knows it's in crisis, but it does take uh, electoral pressure on lawmakers to do something about it. And we'll, you know, sadly continue to have this conversation. Uh, Dr. Catherine Smart, Bob Fife, and Tonda McCharles, thanks for joining us. And that's question period for this week. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy your Sunday. We'll be back here in seven short days.